and welcome to Socialist Think Tank. I'm Laura Daly and this is The Social Ties. And welcome back to the Social Ties on Socialist Think Tank. I am so excited to have with me today the Rickard sisters, Sophie and Scarlett. Hello. Hiya. Thanks for How are you two? Oh, thanks for coming. Are you well? Yeah, fine. Thanks. Yeah. Lovely. Thank you so much for coming today. I'm really excited to hear about what it is you guys do. Um, I'm going to stop talking and let people listen to what you've got to say if you want to just tell us whichever one of you wants to start we do have two people today double the fun um just let us know what it is that you do or have done so Scarlett and I are real sisters as in we have the same parents and we work together making graphic novels I write the words make the stories up and Scarlett draws the pictures So that's how we work as a team. And the reason we're here today is to tell you about our graphic novel adaptation of the socialist classic Robert Tressel's Ragged Trousered Philanthropists, which (laughs) (laughs) Um, it is a famous book that um, has been around. I mean, it was written over 100 years ago and it's been Um, important through lots of generations of socialist thinking and it is considered sort of the first truly working class novel because the man who wrote it was a painter and decorator and it's a story of a group of painters and decorators and their families and how their lives are impacted by the capitalist system that we all live in and so Robert Tressel used the stories of these people's lives to demonstrate how the system is stacked against us and how it keeps us poor and how people interact with that. So it's quite a human way of having an economics lesson. The original story is 355,000 words long and is written in the style of somebody who was living in 1910, which is exactly what he was. So um, there was quite a lot of um, work to do to make it fit into a graphic novel ours is what is it Scarlett 360 pages 352 pages yeah and so the whole story is draw it is shown in pictures like cartoons like this with speech bubbles so the only text that you see as you're reading the book is the things people are saying to each other everything else is just in the pictures so the context is there for you to look at but the only thing you actually have to read is what people are saying to each other. So what we've actually done is translated lots of words into lots of pictures. Hmm. One of the things about Robert Tressel um, when he wrote the original is that he put a lot of emphasis on detail. He, He really wanted people to feel what it's like to be a working person, you know, working with your hands on a building site and, and all the things that they, go through even down to the grit of the sandpaper he was really specific with detail which is great for drawing but can be a bit it can bog you down a bit when you're trying to read prose um and so in when we first talked about doing it the original idea was well we'll just draw all the detail and then use the dialogue 
for people to talk and, and but we realized quite quickly that it was going to need editing down a lot um, otherwise it would have been in like five volumes or something and the the language that he used is quite archaic for modern audience so so you know it's quite long meandering sentences and stuff and and so we we uh, kind of tightened it up a little bit as well just so that it was more relevant for for modern audiences now but the main reason um for doing it is that um over the years people have always been recommending this book like you know people like jeremy corbyn have said you know it was what got him into socialism and you know ricky tomlinson you know often says how important it was to him uh, when he was in prison um and so people are constantly recommending it to one another but it's really heavy going especially if you're dyslexic or not a big reader um, and so the idea of doing something that would make it more accessible to people who wouldn't necessarily delve into a brick of a novel from the turn of the century um, was a really interesting idea and something we were quite keen to do. One of the clever things that Robert Tressel did was that he would um, use, so the main character, Owen, is a socialist convert and is always trying to persuade the people that he works with to think differently and see what's happening differently. So he will present Owen trying to explain some kind of economic theory to his workmates and then you'll see it played out in real life in those people's, you know, so you can, um, the things Owen says then gets demonstrated and so it's sort of quite repetitive. So you, you get to understand an idea in three or four different ways as you see the impact it has on different people. And that includes the women of the families and the children. And you see um, the pressures that the uh, people who are employing the men are also under and, you know, all of those things. So we were able to, when we did the adaptation, we cut down a bit of that repetition, but we've kept the flavour of it it's still authentically the same story and the characters are funny and you know and and well like you really feel like you know them mm. it was funny i mean working on something so big this is our first this is our first adaptation and also the first time that we worked on anything that was quite so enormous and complex um, and the original book, I think there was something like 74 characters or something we worked out. Okay. Um, and I mean, there, there were more than that, probably, as background characters. But we had to weed that down a bit because it was really important to, uh, when you're drawing a story, it's really important to make sure that all the characters are really distinctly them so that people don't get confused between different people. Um, and so we had to do quite a lot of whittling to to uh, to get it down to the characters that we've got. I mean, all, all the main ones are in there, but the, like little extraneous. There, there was some poor little lad called Ned, who was a uh, another apprentice on the on the building site, and he ended up being blended with Bert, who was an apprentice, um, because we just couldn't. It, it would just be too much. And so things like that, we had to kind of um, distill it a little bit um, and really think about what people look like and how to make them really different from one another. 
um, and spending all that time. I think um, Sophie was a was doing the adaptation for about a year, doing the writing, and then it took me about eighteen months to draw. Um, and so we really felt like we knew these people. They felt like real people to us by the end, you know. And it was funny drawing people and sort of feeling like. I just knew what they looked like and it wasn't somebody that I'd made up. They were real people that I just happened to be drawing. It's really odd. They kind of took on a, a life of their own in a way, which is a really interesting process, which because of the enormity of it, I suppose, you know, you're spending hours and hours with, with people. You really start to feel like you know them deep down. It's quite interesting. The way that we work together is vaguely along the lines of I turn our idea into a script a bit like a film script and basically hand it over to Scarlett and then we would sit down together with Scarlett with an actual paper and pencil and rough out a storyboard of what's going to happen on what page and who's going to say what and what you can see in the background just roughly and we would do that together and then she sets about drawing it and she was doing a page every day. So from that rough storyboard sketch to the full finished colored lettered page each day. And then she would text me a, a picture of it at the end of each day. So I feel like the luckiest person on the planet because I get to be somebody who gets a page of a, of, of a book to look at every day. <laughs> and so we, we, even though our roles are very clearly delineated, we're still very involved at all the stages together. Mm. So when she sends me the page, I might ask questions about, you know, what that bit is and why, why is it like this and should we do it a bit? And then sometimes we twiddle it a bit, don't we? And mm. um, it, yeah. works, it, it works very well being a team. It's, it's easier to be two people than one person, isn't it? Oh, definitely. Yeah. This solidarity, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's amazing that you've you've managed to do that in two and a half years. That that's a huge undertaking. I mean, it must have been something that you were really passionate about doing. You mentioned earlier that um, you do graphic novels, so I'm assuming this isn't your first. Are any of your other ones heavily political, or are they completely <laughs> different? Um, our first collaboration is man's best friends which is not political at all I don't think it's mm. about the story of a man who doesn't like his dog <laughs> um, we are currently working on another adaptation for self-made hero who published the regular trials of philanthropists which is <clears throat> from the same era it's Constance Maud's no surrender so it's a fairly um equivalent book but this time it's all about the struggle for women's votes mm. so um it's got some very interesting ideas about direct action and what it's um when when it's appropriate to use violence to achieve political ends and those kind of things but just like with when we were doing the ragged trouser philanthropist as you said it took years and so the political landscape that it was published in was completely different to the political landscape that we first conceived of it in. And it really feels like every day that goes by, it gets more relevant. Mm. I actually worry sometimes that we've made it happen because <laughs> you see the <laughs> yeah. news and there's something in it that just makes me think of a scene in the book that where 
you know, there's a strong theme in the book that the um, people who run the town council of this town where they all live are also the employers and the landlords. So it's the same people. It's the wealthy people in the town that own everything and basically are able to control these people's lives because they set how much the rent is and they also set how much the pay is. So, you know, it, it, it's a, all a metaphor for the wider world. But they're also in the book, they're really corrupt. So they use their positions in public life to make sure that they're giving each other the contracts to get work done using public money. And, you know, the, and then the things come in the news about all of these contracts for PPE during the COVID crisis. And you just think, well, has what's changed in all 111 years later? Another yeah. one that really reminded me is there's a scene in the book where... <clears throat> somebody's complaining about the living conditions for working people and how it, they're actually getting sick and dying and somebody's saying well there's plenty left isn't there we're not going to run out of people to do the work what's the problem and during this past year I felt like that's been the attitude sometimes for the uh, disproportionate way that um, people who live in areas that are deprived have caught covid more and died of it more and also people in in physical jobs as well you know yeah. tend to be people on the front line that um, whole concept of what is essential work because it turns out that if all the marketing executives go home for a few months it doesn't matter yeah <laughs> you know it's so interesting you, you're just singing from our hymn sheet here i think it's it's it makes it really interesting but also really tragic and terrifying that a book that was written so long ago Actually, I mean, it just shows that, you know, the likes of Robert Tressel and, and George Orwell with 1984 were such visionaries and could see what was coming. Um, and then it becomes a chicken and egg situation. What did 1984 become a list of a to do list for these people in power rather than just a warning for, for, for mm -hmm. the rest of us? Um, and I think Tressel, you're absolutely right. For Tressel, the book was a description of everything that he saw around him. And what we know is that the First World War, the Great War is about to happen. Mm. And that really rummaged everything up. And it changed a lot of because um, the uh, working people went to war and came back and everything was different. So it did change. And towards the middle of the century, massive strides were made in making things safer and more equitable for people with things like the NHS, national insurance, social security, free education, um, education service, women being able to own property, nationalizing you know. the trains and the coal board and all that stuff. So a lot has happened. Like we have the concept of health and safety at work which they didn't and that is a have eight hour days which they didn't yeah but some of the things that were really peaking in the 50s 60s and 70s have are coming right back like social food banks exist because social security is not secure it mm. doesn't keep you from starving they and and in the book they've got you know vouchers for loaves of bread and you have to go down the soup kitchen it's the same thing in the book they have the equivalent of zero hours contracts they don't know when they're going to be laid off or why and it's up to the bosses to just decide that they're fed up with somebody and and give them their marching orders that day and that's that they, so they they're insecurely employed by the same people who feel like they're really great 
because they are giving to charity because they're putting a bit of money into the soup kitchen mm. and it's the very same as our employers giving charitable donations to the food bank instead of just paying a living wage mm. but that's the reason for the very long and complicated title it's called the ragged trousered philanthropists and the philanthropists to which it refers are the working people they're ragged trousered because they can't afford to mend their clothes or to get new clothes and they're philanthropists because they work so hard to enrich their employers so rather than seeing the people who are giving to the soup kitchen and putting on a church jumble sale as the philanthropists Robert Tressel's point is that it's us it's you and me it's the people who are working by the hour who are being philanthropic to the employers who are living well on the value added by their labor mm. yeah and the, and the you know the similarities are, are just astounding and, and you're right it's so relevant today and I think that's why it's you know it's a trade unionist handbook um and and I think you're right a lot of people would see that and it, it's a meaty book you know and it, it's difficult to get through um I think the idea of, of making that into a graphic novel and something that is so much more accessible, um, not only is it beautiful and interesting, it's really relevant. And if people can access it that way, then that's just going to further the movement of trade unionism and, and yeah. looking after each other. Um, did you have that in mind when you decided to do it? Was it something that you, was it a message you wanted to give out or was it just something you thought people kept asking you, so you give it a go? Um, well, we we were brought up very much in a socialist household, so we know no different. Um, and, Never better. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it wasn't so much that we felt we have to spread this message, because actually at that moment, it was the height of, um, you know, it's like 2016, I think, when um, the Labour Party was really big and Corbyn was really popular. Glastonbury was chanting, oh, Jeremy Corbyn and everything. It it was that moment when um, I was thinking about it because my godfather gave me a copy of the original when I was really too young to read it. I was about 13 or something. Um, And he used to give me a book every every birthday and this was one birthday um and it was a big fat hardback book which was really heavy and so we used it to weigh things down when we were making tent <laughs> um and so we i never read it at the time because it was just a useful weight um also, but, it had a really angry man on the front i think it was quite off-putting i remember it it was shiny and white wasn't it and it really it was, used to yeah. holding things down when we were building dens. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, so it was years and years later that, I, you know, I, I kept hearing people referring to it and thinking, oh, I really must read that. <laughs> um, the thing is, it's so recommended and so often unfinished. Mm. We've then- noticed when people are talking to us about it, we've noticed that they often refer to about the first third of the book um, and then nobody really talks much about the second half <laughs> um, which is really interesting it just sort of suggests that quite a lot of people haven't quite finished it um, but uh, yeah I mean when when you know it was all this sort of big socialist movement happening in the country it just seemed like the 
right thing to do because I I'm a bit dyslexic myself and I, I struggle to read a, a big thick book like that um which is partly why I hadn't uh, you know and, and so um when people were talking about it a lot and there was this big movement and I'd, I'd read quite a lot of it in bits and I'd, I'd underlined all the descriptive passages in my copy thinking oh I could draw this and that was like I think I did that before we even did Man's Best Friend I think I did that before we were working together. It was um, Charlotte's idea and um, she I, mean, I love a long depressing book I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but um, this wasn't, you know, I, I really enjoy things like Dickens and Hugo and all of that stuff, which are also political, but not so overtly. Mm. There are parts of The Ragged Trials of Philanthropists that really feel like you're being lectured at, which I hope that we've cheered up a bit in our version. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many people who've said to us, usually people who are now in their sort of 60s, 70s, who've said to us, I was given this book as a teenager, and it changed my life. And Jeremy Corbyn's one of those people who regularly says that. Um, but lots and lots of people of that generation. And we did want to make something. Once we'd conceived of the idea of making this, we wanted to make sure it was something that you could put in the hand of a 17-year-old today and then really understand the message and it potentially changed the way they see the world. Mm. And yeah. yeah, you mentioned there that it... Um... You love a good, long, depressing book. And I think for many people, The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist is is probably one of those, especially with the idea that it's so relevant. And then that comes with that, oh, my God, nothing ever changes. We're however many years on and we're still the same. Do you think that you've managed to, to create it in a way that offers a bit more hope than potentially the original did? There is hope in there. There was a version of the book published earlier in the century which ended with the main character contemplating not only his own suicide but also murdering his wife and son as the only way out of his conditions so we didn't go with that version <laughs> <laughs> probably a good choice <laughs> so we, we, we've really um towards the end of the book there is a scene where somebody lays out what could be possible and at that point in the book, the art style goes from a sort of fairly muted, realist um, style of their, their small lives into this really vibrant, colourful, um, utopian idea of what could be. And I think that we spend long enough on that in our version to remind people that there is some hope. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the way the story ends is very much on a note of if we work together then this is possible and it's worth remembering that a lot of it w was possible and did come true mm. it's mm. just that it feels now like it's being eroded but it doesn't mean it can't be replaced yeah yeah i mean look at the railways we got a tiny step closer this year didn't we to renationalizing <laughs> them we, we keep going with that <laughs> Yeah. Let's hope we don't need a world war to um to fix everything this time round. Mm. Although the way things go, and I don't, I wouldn't suggest we're that far off that really. Do you know when COVID first happened, I was so naive, but I remember saying to my family, "Now that the whole of humanity has one common aim that we are all fighting for or against, you know, to try and to protect 
all of us as equal humans, surely everyone will just work together now and stop bombing each other. And it lasted about three weeks. Mm. Yeah, but I think I think you're right. I think I naively naively thought the same. To be honest with you, I've always said we need a common goal to bring us all together. But actually, I have seen that it has brought communities closer together. So we might be starting small, but but it has had some positives. If you if you want to try and find them, and I think we have to, don't we? Have to try. It it has essentially done that on on a small scale in little pockets of places around and the also world. more small scale things like that that grows doesn't it exponentially people it passes on to more communities so it's all I think good, the uk it? experience of the last four or five years of that real wave of interest in socialism and the way that it really captured the imagination of that group of teenagers who've grown up in austerity and not really seen anything else that's still out there it still exists all of those people still feel like that mm. and they are finding each other still because there's more to it than than just one person absolutely yeah yeah couldn't agree more they, they, and... they can put it all under the rug but it doesn't make it go away mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and I, th- I think they are tempting to sort of um silence that a bit aren't they they're trying to batter us down so much that we lose that hope and passion for it i think you're book is a really good way to sort of deliver that message to a new audience um and and I, I certainly hope that that's what happens if you if you had a lot of interest in it thus far and, and when was it published it came out september 2020 so mm. right in the middle of covid <laughs> so we've not done any of the things you would normally do when a book comes out like you know events and stuff but what it did mean is that a lot of stuff happened on social media, which has worked well for us. So that's good. Mm. I mean, even doing things like this from our own homes, it's all been great. So that helped. And it has gone down really, really well. It's gone down well with people who already know and love the original, which I was a little bit nervous about. Because if you've you know, taken a pair of scissors to something people really love, I felt sure I was going to get lots of comments about, the choices that I'd made but so mm. far either people are too polite to tell me or I haven't made too bad decisions <laughs> if we really wanted it to be as true to the original as it could be so that um, people could feel that they have read the book when they've read our version yeah well, it's it- not a ladybird version it's not a children's yeah. edition it is the whole thing and I think that in Britain we don't have a culture of adults reading sequential art that there is in France people read graphic novels all the time Mm. so sometimes we do get a little bit of confusion that people think it's a children's version like you used to get those illustrated bibles yeah (laughs) (laughs) but yeah I mean it's not unsuitable for children um and we've had some very positive responses from teenagers as well um including somebody who told us that they were were really enjoying it but they kept having to put it down because it was making them so cross which I thought was amazing (laughs) that's got to be the plan surely get angry (laughs) it's been going really well um I think it's on its um it's about to be on its fourth print run I think since it came out so it's been selling really well and and people seem to you know we've been getting really good feedback which is brilliant like Sophie said you know we were nervous about how people were going to receive it um especially as well from a from an illustrating point of view um when you're drawing uh characters that people are very fond of and they have them in their heads you don't want to 
do something completely against what they were expecting and you know yeah um but we've had really you know most most people that we've we've heard from have been very um that, you know said really nice things about it which is fantastic the other thing that we've done is that we've made a way for people to donate copies on our website. So we found that people, especially people who were given the copy as a, as a young person and it changed their lives, want to be able to pass that benefit on. And so um, on our website, you can click on a button to donate a copy to a school library or a prison library. And so oh, it's wow. just the, the cover price of the book and, and I send a parcel to someone who wants one so that's been and people are so generous with that and it's gone, oh, that down, is gone down very well in you know sixth form colleges and also prisons which I think is a great place to put it because yeah you know, to show some people who have had the sticky end of society that maybe it's not all down to them what an absolutely fantastic idea and oh another socialist think tank dog hello <laughs> um, I think that's just wonderful what a great idea and I do hope more people do that I'd love to get stuff like this into schools there are a lot of schools now you are not allowed to um, disparage capitalism now mm -hmm. according to government guidelines um, and there may be an argument that this book does that um uh, I think it should be in every school and every prison and everywhere and everyone should read it. And um, I'm one of those people who didn't get through the original. So I'll be buying a copy of this <laughs> and getting through it this way. Um, you, I wanted to come back on something you've said about, you know, taking scissors to, a, a, um, to somebody's favourite stories. Um, you know, it's essentially um, doing a cover of someone's favourite thing. Um, and you've said there that you're going to be working on Constance Maud's No Surrender, which again, for, for people who are interested in, in women's movement and all of that, is, is another big undertaking and it's very important. Are you finding sort of similar experience with that book? We learn so much from doing this one that we're doing No Surrender with a bit more confidence, I think. Mm. We're certainly being more efficient because it really pains me to say this, but there's a whole chapter of the Ragged Trousers of Philanthropist that got cut that Scarlet drew. Like there's loads of drawings that got cut because I didn't understand how much shorter it needed to be. So I feel like we're doing it better this time. Um, the original work is a Sorry. bit easier to, the material's easier to work with, with No Surrender because it is more, um, I want to say this without sounding too rude about Robert Tressel. I feel like Constance Maud had her reader in mind a little bit more than Robert Tressel did. Robert Tressel was very keen to get his uh, message over, sometimes at the expense of the reader's feelings, I think. And so um, there's those kind of things are different this time. But I don't know, Scarlett, how are you feeling drawing it? Do you feel... I feel like, I think, I think that... The difference is, it, it, the, I mean, the original of No Surrender is quite a lot shorter than The Ragged Trials of Philanthropist. However, we seem to have made our graphic novel a bit longer than The Ragged Trials of Philanthropist somehow. <laughs> but anyway, it, it, we discovered that deeds take a lot more drawing than words. And it's all happy, <laughs> it's not words. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but one of the things that, that feels quite different is that... Um, no surrender is more story shaped 
really than the ragged child's of philanthropist so it's got sort of peaks and troughs and and uh peril um romance and romance um whereas the ragged child's of philanthropist sophie had to do some clever things with it to mix it up a bit in the middle in the original the whole middle section is quite sort of depressing and not an awful lot of stuff happens other than people's lives just being awful so um, a whole series of things getting gradually worse and worse and worse all on top of each other for a whole load of different people and you start to wonder where's this going this is just really bleak you know and so Sophie mixed it up so that um in our version something happens on every page you don't have that she called it the swamp the bit in the middle <laughs> um and so um you haven't had to do so much of that with no surrender have you because it was already a good shape you know? and it's lots of dramatic action because it's deeds not words mm. so there are speeches that are important but there's also lots of exciting direct action and you know, upsetting the police to draw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm so excited for that to come out and I'm really excited to get my copy of this as well and, and have a good read of it. Um, if if our viewers and listeners want to get hold of a copy, how do they do that? Um, all good bookshops, preferably ones that pay tax and look after their employers. Nice. Um, <laughs> there's lots of um, comic and graphic novel specialist shops in Britain almost all of whom do um, postage. So, you know, um, even if you don't live near one, their websites are great for exploring this. And one of the things that we got told when Man's Best Friends came out is that it's a good gateway drug for people from, from you know, uh, traditional novels to graphic novels. Like, mm -hmm. so if reading The Ragged Child of Philanthropist gives you a taste for reading more sequential art, then really recommend having a look for a comic art shop near you um we also sell it from our website which is ricardsisters.com yeah and that's where you can um choose to donate a copy of it to someone else you can indeed yeah amazing amazing i really really encourage everybody to to do that and get yourselves a copy and give one to someone who you think needs it um one last thing i wanted to discuss with you was that you know the aspect of creativity in in making change is that something that you've been aware of for a long time is it is that a goal of yours it's this is an interesting one because um well sophie who was about to say probably what i was just thinking about marx oh no i wasn't but go for it <laughs> well there was this quote from marx about um i'm paraphrasing because i can't remember it completely <laughs> Um, but it was basically saying that all the um, sort of classic Victorian novelists did more for social justice and social change than than all the economists and po uh, politicians put together, because um, people, when you're reading fiction, you can imagine being that character and you can put yourself in that position and I think um, certainly you know things like films and books and and graphic novels like this can can help people uh, have empathy for people with completely different lives to them and understand what life's really like for for people on the breadline and I think that does change people's perception in a way that's more direct and emotional than 
being told by somebody that people are queuing at a food bank it's sort of different so mm. i think it does play a big part in in changing people's um view of the world that they live in so it's an invitation to spend some time in someone else's shoes isn't it when you watch something like i can't remember the name of it now russell t davis did an amazing TV oh what, years and years years and years like that really had mm. everybody gripped and everybody talking about the issues that were raised in a way that you're not going to get if you publish a collection of essays mm. you know um, and so it does make a difference. But it's also a theme in the Ragged Trouser Philanthropist because the main character is a talented sign painter who's employed as a painter and decorator. And he's basically slapping on Magnolia and he wishes he was able to actually do something meaningful. And I think that that cultural artistic expression is important for the human soul. Doesn't mean that you have to do it for a living, but to have the opportunity to do it is so important and things like the way that the arts and drama and music curriculum is being chipped away at in the way that schools are having to be organized is one of the issues that I think would be so important to Tressel if he was here now. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think so. Yeah, 100% agree with that. It's um, We were speaking to somebody recently about who's a musician, a punk musician, and how, how you know, those messages are more accessible to people. And I, I guess looking at things creatively, like you say, film, television, music, graphic novels, art, anything like that, it has a sense of accessibility to it that our political structures simply don't have. And that's, you know, on purpose to put people off. Um, so yeah, I, I massively agree, and I, I really hope that this is the start of. Um, well, it's been going for a while, you know, the bubblings of um, craftivism and all of that. That is, is a big deal, but we do need to push that. I think because I think what you've done here is so important, and and honestly, I, I would never have thought to do something like that. And I think this book is is such an important piece of education not just art um and not just entertainment but education for people that if we can get it to people who wouldn't ordinarily pick up a massive book like this and would just use it to build dens you know <laughs> then then that's what we need to be doing um i have to say there's been moments um over the last few months where i've sort of thought i can't believe we actually did that it was such a huge ridiculously ambitious idea and I can't believe we actually did it <laughs> but I mean it, we, it was so fun to do we really enjoy working together and we, we do everything long distance so we do it all on, over the internet before it was cool we were you know, <laughs> um, collaborating using FaceTime and shared documents and stuff um, and uh, so um, it's been a really fun process to to do that and we had a really good editor as well David Hine um, who's a, a sort of veteran comic uh, writer and artist he, he's done a lot of stuff um, and uh, that was really good as well because we haven't really got a um, comic art background so basically I like drawing, Sophie likes writing. We decided that the only way we would ever get around to writing, drawing a book is to do it together. Um, it does work to egg each other on. Like, yeah. It really, really does help. And you can, I, I think it comes out in the finished product that we both are motivated by trying to make each other laugh. 
yeah although the wider context of the book might be a bit on the gloomy side sometimes it doesn't matter what I write Scarlett's always going to make it funny <laughs> whether I ask her to or not <laughs> it's one of the things that I really enjoy about the way we work is that I think we've since discovered that quite a lot of um uh, sort of comic artist teams um the writer will actually specify what goes in each panel and and Sophie doesn't do that. She, we just have a screenplay. It's basically a screenplay. And then I come up with the action. It's um, to do the props and the set and choose the action. We usually have a, a chat, don't we, about what people look like when they first appear. And yeah. stuff. But then, yeah, you get to do the casting, the costume, the props, the locations. Yeah. And have opinions about the weather. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, and so it, it's, it makes it really open, you know, there's, there's lots of potential interpretation there. So when I draw things a certain way, it's not necessarily the way that Sophie imagined them when she was writing it, which, which has a whole added interesting dimension to it, which um, makes it, it keeps it all really interesting, I think. Yeah. Seem to have a thing for putting lots of detail in the panels. That uh, if, as a, uh, we've since learned that a comic art, art writer, like Scarlett said, would specify. And so this panel comes from this angle, and it, what you can see is, and it lists all of the detail in there. And I don't do that, but Scarlett puts in crowd scenes and horses and bicycles and all the things that are hard to draw anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Full on denied putting a horse doing a poo in. The ragged child of philanthropist and I had to find it and show you a picture to prove that you'd done it. Yeah, I'd forgotten that I'd going to the pawn shop. There's just a horse pulling a cart doing a poo in the background. <laughs> but I think something that I felt was really important is that I, I wanted the I wanted the the feeling of reading the book to be almost like being immersed in a film. So I wanted it to to have a real sense of time and place so that it was believably real. Um, so although it's, you know, it's obviously all drawings, I, I wanted it to feel like you were completely there with them because I thought it would help people understand the feelings. It's an important part of world building, isn't it? That people have context in their lives and the fact that everything's horse drawn means there's going to be poo. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's thing, a... one of the things that we talk about quite often when, when with this particular book um was the, the the sort of challenge of having to think about light sources because of course in the modern era you can just put the light on and that's that um but when you're thinking about 1910 you're actually having to consider the social economic situation of the people whose light it is you know do they have gas are they are they the sort of people who have an oil lamp? Would they only be able to afford candles? No, you have to think about every little thing from from that sort of angle. Mm. In that picture, for example, I would have written Owen and Nora wrapping up the presents, but she's got the lighting coming from the gas lamp, and you know. It's amazing. That's incredible. It's so beautifully done. I'm really excited to get it. I'm, I really can't wait. I'm going to order one this afternoon. Um, I think um, probably beautiful pictures and horse poo is a good place to end. <laughs>
I just want to say thank you so much, both of you, for coming on and speaking to me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, it's really nice to talk to people who are doing really positive things. Um, and you should be really proud of what you're doing. I can't wait to get this book. I'm really excited for your version of No Surrender as well. Women's rights is, is right up there on the top of my priority list. So that's going to be fantastic. Thank um, you so much you, for having us. Oh, no, anytime. Come back on any time. That gets people together in the way that you do because that's an important part. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. If you do want to get yourself a copy of um, the Rickard Sisters version of The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist, do seek out your local comic and graphic novel shops first. That's your first point of call. You'll be able to find them probably online. If not, you can find it at therickardsisters.com where you can buy a copy for yourself but also you can donate a copy to somebody else a school a prison a friend who you think would do with reading it um please do that spread the word get get this graphic novel out there it's absolutely fantastic thank you again to the regard sisters for coming on the show today if you like what you've seen today don't forget to head over to our youtube ch channel like share subscribe press the bell so you don't miss any of our content and we will see you all again next time. Thank you. We'll keep the red flag flying here.